Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Man, well, inevitably, there is one song that stays in my mind after worship that I wind up singing all week long. Now, I got to tell you, today, I'm, I'm in trouble because I've got about three songs that are going to want to be running through my mind all week long, and I'm not going to know which one to sing. So I'm in serious trouble today, serious trouble today. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. I want to invite you to join me there. Psalm chapter 1, a gateway psalm, the gateway psalm. This is the psalm that opens the door to all the other psalms. And of course, the psalms are a book of hymns, a book of praises that God gave to his people to use in worship. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Comes from the psalms. And we just sang part of a psalm. And so that is what this is. It is a gateway psalm. It sets the tone for all 149 of the other psalms. And so it's a very important one. Here's what the scripture says. God says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, Father, as we uh, have your word open before us today, I pray, Lord, that uh, in, this, in these moments together around your word, that you might capture our hearts in a fresh way, that Father God, that we might acknowledge you as the God that you are, and that Father, we might with our lives live out that acknowledgement. Father, meet us. Show us who you are in, in fresh ways. And grant us the courage to respond with faith and faithfulness. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, we're going to do something for the next seven weeks. We're going to continue our pause from the, uh, our study in the uh, Gospel of John. And we're going to be looking together specifically at faithfulness and particularly at uh, the call of God to faithfulness that is found in his call, found throughout the scripture for his people to be strong. In fact, there are two calls that you see constantly in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do not fear and be strong. Do not fear and be strong. Do not fear and be strong. Over 30 times in the Bible, God calls out to his people and he says to them, be strong, be strong, be strong. And that's a, it makes great sense because to belong to the God who made this world when this world has rejected him and rejoices in its rejection, to, to be in a world that pressures everyone in it to go deeper in rejecting him, it takes a, 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 some real courage and it takes some genuine strength. Be strong. Do not fear. 
When you think about it, you need strength and, and you need courage, not simply because of the way the world is oriented against the God that you follow and you love and you serve. But if you think about it, you've got an enemy already inside you that works against him as well. So you have pressure from the outside and you get pressure from the inside. Any of you felt any pressure on the inside this week? To be less than faithful. Yeah. And so it is the need to be fearless in following Christ. The need to be strong in following Christ is, is vital. Is vital. To live strong in faithfulness to him is vital. So what we want to do is we want to look at some personal practices and then we want to look at some public practices and then we will come back. And this year, I promise... Lord willing, we will finish the Gospel of John. So today we begin in Psalm 1. As I said, it's a gateway psalm. It's a sober, kind of simple, though, look at reality, at life as it really is from God's perspective. It's addressed to those who are God's people in particular, to those who own him as their God and who believe that they belong to him. It's a, it's a psalm that the, the Hebrews call it a, a praise. It is a song meant to be sung together in worship. It is a song that is meant to be used by believers to remind each other of the way, watch this, that God has designed life to work and uh, what God means when he says our lives are meant to be good. The dual aims of the psalm are to ensure that believers continue to see life as God sees it and to live their lives as God designed for this life to be lived. It reveals to us the secret to what God calls the good life that you and I both long to have and long to keep. It's a recognition to and a response to what I call the drift. The drift that constantly is at work in the lives of God's people to draw them away from him and draw them away from the life he gives and makes them in the end weak and vulnerable in their faith and in their faithfulness, and at the same time robs them of the very good life God has for them. Robert Robinson captured this drift rather famously in a song of his own, a hymn that he wrote. Perhaps you've heard it. Come thou fount of every blessing. Robinson confesses in that hymn what every honest believer confesses. He says, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, prone to drift, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The Bible tells us there's a remedy for drift, and it begins with understanding what God meant for life to be. And what God meant when he said that life was meant to be good. And what God uh, has, has told us when he tells us how that good life is meant to be gained. And so Psalm 1 shows us that a good life in this fallen world is a life that is, first of all, strong enough to face and overcome the challenges and hardships that life inevitably brings. And it shows us that, that uh, life, it is a life that is blessed with happiness coming from a sense of worth and wellness that only God can give. And someone shows us finally that it is the result of one persistent choice made by those who believe. One, one choice made over and over and over and over and over and over again. David spells out for believers all of these things. He wants believers to be confronted with what God says life is really all about and what makes it good. He wants believers to be confronted with a basic choice that sets and keeps setting uh, this decision as the great guide to the course of their lives. He wants us to see these things. He wants us to see that there are two ways to live, two kinds of fruit to be born, two possible outcomes to life, and one decision that we have to keep making over and over and over again. These are the things that we've got to understand and then accept and then finally act on as if, as if they, they are the key, and they are, to living strong 
and having a blessed life. Now, today we're going to look at the first one, at the two ways there are to live in verses one and two. It's so important it's going to take today to do that. Now, look with me at verses one and two. David opens the psalm with an immediate contrast between two kinds of people and two ways of living or two lifestyles, both of which he presents as a result of a deliberate choice. What you're seeing in verses one and two are a deliberate, ongoing choice. Representing one way to live is the happy or the blessed person, and representing the other are the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. David shows us that these two ways uh, 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 of living are, are described for, are, are, are well understood by understanding what the blessed man doesn't do and then what he does do. In fact, that's the way he sets it up. He says, look at verse one, this is what a blessed man with a blessed life does not do. Verse two, he says, this is what a blessed man with a blessed life does do. And by implication, he says, this is what a wicked person uh, does, verse one, and this is what, verse two, a wicked person does not do. Now, let me go ahead and pull through, push through this wicked, the notion of wicked. Nobody likes that word. We don't like wicked. We don't like sin. We don't like judgment. In fact, we hate this sermon already, so we're, we're wishing it would just get over with. Okay, but let's talk about wicked. Wicked simply means a wrongdoer. Does that make it easier for you? Does that make it easier for you? A, a, a wrongdoer. Wicked, sinful, uh, wrongdoer. Uh, uh, all right, so wicked. Let's, let's, the, I, know, I know Broadway's got its own version of wicked. You like that version, you don't like mine. I know that, I know that. But it, it, God is dealing with the reality that there are there is wickedness, there is wrongdoing in the world, and um, he speaks directly to that. Now, Notice with me how, how David uses some word pictures as he tries to unpack what a blessed life actually looks like in verse one, showing what the blessed person avoids. You'll notice first, the blessed person doesn't, he says, walk in the counsel of the wicked. And here again, those are wrongdoers without faith in God, the faithless. And walk is an important word here. It, it is a metaphor for living. The idea here is that the person who is blessed chooses not to live using the advice of other people for making life good. This is a person, he does not walk in the counsel of the, of the wicked. He does not turn to human beings to tell them, to tell him or her how life is meant to be lived or how life is meant to be defined. What makes life good? I don't turn to other people for answers in how I am to live and what I am ultimately to aim for. I'm going to find my guidance for life and I'm going to find my definition for, of a good life. I'm going to find it somewhere other than the people who are around me. Does that make sense? He says, I, I choose not to do that. I don't ask the world to show me how to think about life or what makes it good. Secondly, the blessed person doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Another word for the faithless, those who, uh, are, uh, who act on their own advice for making the world work. Stand refers always to behavior. And the idea here is that the person who is truly blessed it chooses not to join the unbelieving world of others in doing what they do to find and keep a good life. We don't join them in the pursuit of the things that they are pursuing, believing that if they just get those things, then life will be good. The blessed person does not chase what the world chases. Third, the blessed person doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, and those are mockers, those who make fun of or deride God's will and his ways as out of date, out of touch, on the wrong side of history, dangerous, which is the charge that you hear so very often about the Christian faith, the Orthodox Christian faith, out of date, out of touch, on the wrong side of history, dangerous, and that's where we are. Now we're dangerous, we're told. And the pressure is immense. We may not sit in the seat of scoffer, but we will be very, very aware of the scoffing. And that causes us oftentimes to be silent. 
This picture of sitting with others is one of spending life with such people and immersing yourself in their view of the world, planning and plotting with them how to do more of what they're already doing to get the good life. It's a matter of sharing with them and denying that God has anything to say about life that will really be of any help. Mockers don't want to know or understand God or his view of life. They've got it all figured out on their own. Now notice with me how each of these acts is a consequence of a decision made. Each of them shows a degree of departing from God and conforming to the world. One of the challenges I have in, in this psalm is that immediately we want to think in terms of the saved and the lost, the saved and the lost. This part is for the saved. This part is for the lost. But I want to back up. I want you to back up with me and read the psalm again. And I want you to understand this psalm was written for believers. It, it's not addressing. It is not addressing the world per se. Can God use this in the life of an unbeliever? Oh, of course, but it is meant for believers. And so this is really important. David is saying to believers, there are two ways to live. And even though you have said, I will follow God, there are still for you two ways to live. And he's warning us against taking the wrong way. And he's saying, and what he's doing is, in verse one, he's actually confronting us with the alternative way by saying this is not what a blessed person does, but he's confronting us with it and he's challenging us to look at that and say, do I do that? Is there ever a time when I'm walking in the way of the wicked? Are there times when I stand in the way of sinners, when I behave like the world, when I chase what the world chases, thinking that that will give me a good life. Do I, uh, let me back up. Do I go to the world for, for advice about how to live, how to, how to make life better, how to make life good, what the end of life is? Do I ask the world to tell me that or do I go somewhere else? Do I scoff? Do I mock what God has said is the way to life do I make little of it? Do I make light of it? Do I push it to the corner? Do I say, well, that's not for me? I still believe, but that's not for me. And what I want you to notice with me is that in each of these three steps, there is this, there is a decline. Or, or let's just keep using the picture, there's a drift. It begins by considering the world's definition of, and other people's definition of, let's just say humanity's definition of, what is good and how life should be lived. Of saying somehow that the alternative is not enough for me, that I need more, I, I need more information, I need a better perspective. And so I turn to somewhere other than God himself for that information. Inevitably, as we stay there and the world says, this is the way that life is to be lived and this is the goal that we ought to have, you ought to have. Inevitably, we begin to stand in the way of sinners. We begin to behave like they do because we're beginning to buy into what they've said is the goal and the meaning and the purpose of life. Inevitably, having done that, we slide into the seat of a scoffer, maybe not being as blatant as some, but we slide into the seat of a scoffer and we, what we do there is we begin to cast doubt on what God has said is good. And we begin to question the way God has said we should live. And you can see churches, entire churches make that drift. People make that drift. Churches make that drift. And that is what uh, David is really warning us against and about. Notice this blessed person decides against accepting others' good counsel being a part of its pursuits and adopting the worst of its attitudes, scoffing at God and his idea of how life should be lived. So here we have a poignant description of this drift that every believer has got to guard against, this path of walking, standing, and sitting with a faithless, of showing unfaithfulness in our lives as a believer and of seeing it become more and more habitual. Immediately, David is challenging those who call themselves believers, one of God's people, to examine themselves for these things. There's more, and I want you to see it in verse two. David not only shows what the blessed person doesn't do, but he shows what that blessed person does do. Two things continually. 
First, he says in verse two, that the blessed person delights in the law of the Lord. And two words are critical here, the delight and law. To delight, of course, is to find pleasure in. And immediately, this sounds so odd. This is so contrary to our thinking. Uh, who delights in rules? I mean, come on. It, almost immediately, you're going, yep, this is really good for Sunday school. This is really good for church. This does not work in the real world where I live. It will not work on Monday. Are you kidding me? He delights in rules. There must be something wrong with him. You see, in our minds and in our way of thinking, if you're going to have happiness, if you're going to know this blessedness that David is talking about, if you're going to know happiness, happiness for us is freedom from rules. Happiness for us is choosing our own way and our own design of deciding for ourselves who we are and what we'll be and all of that. That's real happiness. So this is crazy. This is crazy talk. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Are you kidding me? Come on. Right. Ah, oh, are you scoffing? Are you sitting in that scoffer seat right now? Well, let me help you get out of the scoffer seat. Can I? Let me help you get out of the scoffer seat. Can I get you out of the scoffer seat? Okay. All right. Yep. Thank you for that permission. I appreciate it. All right. Notice, notice, notice. His delight. He takes pleasure in the law of the Lord. That doesn't seem to go together. But you got to understand what, what is meant by God's law here. God's law, as used here and throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is far more comprehensive than just a series of rules. God's law in the Old Testament and New includes three things. Let's just say three things. God's teaching about himself, God's commands for life, God's teachings about himself and life, God's commands for life, and finally, God's own story. When you look at the law, it includes all of God's revelation, where God has taught us this is what life is about, here is what I want, and here is my purpose for it. So to understand God's law is to understand that God has certain explanations he offers for life, certain commands, yes, that he offers for life, and Certain, a certain story that he tells that ultimately reflects his purpose for life. How he is active and working in this life and working in human history to bring redemption, salvation, and restoration to this world. The blessed delight in God's explanation, delight in God's commands, and delight in God's story. Why? Three reasons. First, because they know that we humans only become really who we are and who we are meant to be when we accept God's design of us and his ways for us. You never really become human, fully human, until you have become fully his and you've learned to say yes to him in the way that he made you and the purpose for which he made you. Secondly, they delight in God's law because they know that we're only truly free when we conform to his guidelines for life as he created life to be lived. When we live in God's world by his wisdom and his standards, life works. Life works really well. And we're able to see the good and we're able to appreciate the good. But when we live our way, life doesn't work. We wind up empty and it becomes harder and harder to see anything as good. It's harder and harder to see life as good. The third reason why the blessed delight take pleasure in the law of God, and it is this, and, and, and I love this, it is because by his explanations of life by his commands of life and by his story. Do you know what God does? God shows us who he is and God shows us his heart. 
And if you really want to understand why the blessed delight in the law of God, it is because they have caught a glimpse of who God really is, and they have come to say, I want more. In the law of God, they discover a God who actually sees them, knows them, even in their fallenness, and still loves them. When they see the God who is in his explanations, in his commands, and and in his story, when they see and understand his desire, his purpose of redeeming a lost world of people for himself, their hearts crying out to be loved and accepted find immediately a God who loves and accepts them. And suddenly when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand how crazy it is not to delight in God's law and how the really crazy people are not believers who delight in God's law, but those who scoff at it. I've met the Lord in his words, seen his heart, understood his plan and his purpose. And and, and I tell you, whenever you you truly do that, your heart leaps up and says yes. Your heart leaps up and says yes. That's what I want. That's what I need. That's what I've been hungering for. All this other stuff, all this other advice. I saw, a, I saw a report. I saw a report that said, you know, the secret to happiness are two things: wealth and how you spend it. I thought, well, okay, there it goes for me: wealth and how you spend it. So first of all, I got to get rich, and then I've got to spend it right. I saw another article that said, if you want to be happy, don't have kids. Well, that's done. That's done. How many of you are unhappy with kids? Got a few. (laughs) The rest of you just aren't telling the truth. (laughs) That's just all there is to it. That's just all there is to it. You're just not. (laughs) I mean, kids are hard. No, kids are a joy. They, They can be a joy. They can be a joy. When they're sleeping at night and quiet, it's just... It's a joy. Yeah, okay, well. But the, the, the reality is, this is where happiness, this is where blessedness is found. This, here, and knowing the God of the universe. When I come to know his character and I come to see his heart and I understand his purposes and his plans, when I find out who God is, that he has a purpose for me that I couldn't see, that he sees a treasure in me that I couldn't conceive of, that he has a, a love and a grace toward me that I, 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 I find unfathomable. When, when all of that is true, then my delight comes to be in the law of God. And I begin to go to the word of God and I, and I begin to go with a heart that is hungry and that says, just tell me more. Tell me more. Show me more. Because when I look into your law, I see you to be glorious, to be majestic and beautiful and of great worth. I get hooked. I get hooked. The blessed delight in God's law because they delight in the God they find revealing himself there. Now, Notice the second part of verse two. It's no surprise that the blessed person then goes on to live meditating on the teachings, commands, and story of God. Now to meditate, of course, means to ponder, but here it actually has some uh, additional meaning. It's a a pondering, watch this, with a view toward plotting and planning one's life according to God's word. The blessed person lives life learning the word and then asking continually, how can I take what God teaches, 
his explanation of life? How can I take his commands, his desires uh, in life? And how can I take his story, his goal for life, and, 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 and all that he's about in this world, and how, watch this, how can I plot and how can I plan my life so that it's always in sync with his design for life and his heart for life and his mission in life? How can I sync up? Because that's when life really begins is when I get into sync with my maker, when I get into sync with his heart, when my heart aligns with his heart. My, my refrigerator, it told me it was time to get a new, uh, a new filter. And I said, great. I went online to see how much the filter was and I said, not so great. So I went on Amazon and I found, watch this, I found, I found four filters for half the price of three filters. I went and I said, Amazon, send them to me. Send them to me. I got in there to my, and it's a new refrigerator. I've never done it before. I went in there and I got ready to take that filter out and I could not get the stinking thing out. It would not come out and I got upset. And so you know what I did? I sought the counsel of the wicked. I went on YouTube. I went on YouTube because if you want to do it, it's on YouTube. I went on YouTube and I looked it up and sure enough, there was some guy with a funny accent telling me how to get it out. So I watched that thing three times. The fifth time I got it out. Oh, it's easy, yeah. No, it wasn't easy. But Amazon came through and I got my filters in and I was so excited because I hate stuff like that. You know, I don't have time for filters. I need water, but I don't have time for filters. Does anybody? Yeah, I mean, who's got time for stuff like that? So it came in and I was so excited. I unwrapped that thing and stuck it in there and the refrigerator said, nope. I said, nope, nope, it's error. So what did I do? I sought the counsel of the wicked. <laughs> Instead of going to YouTube, though, I just went online, I just went, went, just Googled it. And sure enough, I was the 937th person who has bought these things from Amazon. They were not made by the maker. They were not made by the designer. They did not have the designer's chip and they would not work. I was out of sync with the designer. I was out of sync with the maker's plan and it would not, I mean, nothing would come out. It just kept saying, eh. Cheryl said, what are you doing? I said, don't talk to me right now. Do not talk to me right now. I'm, I'm having an existential moment with our refrigerator. Do not talk to me right now. I needed Jesus right then, right there. So anyway, there we have it. I finally broke down. I went online. I said, hi, GE. Any chance you'd sell me some of your filters with chips? Oh, yeah. Twice the amount of money. One fewer filter. Got it yesterday. I can go home today and get water. Life is so much better. When you cooperate with the designer. But, but do you see what this means? The truly blessed person lives a life plotting, planning, always thinking about how to bring his or her life into sync with God's explanations, his commands, and his story. They live their lives always seeking to, to understand what the design is what the desire is and what the goal is. 
And they're constantly thinking day and night, how do I do this? How do I do this? They're constantly praying day and night, Lord, help me. Help me to be faithful in this. Look, 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 look. When, when they have a, a challenge in their marriage, they, they're, they're always, they're not, they're not running to psychology today online. And, and, and I'm all for Christian counselors and counseling and all that. I'm not, I'm not. I, but when you're engaging an issue, the first thing a follower of Jesus is going to do is going to go, all right, well, what is God's explanation for this thing called marriage? And then what is his desire for this thing called marriage? And what is his desire for me as a husband? What is his desire for me as a wife? And then how does this fit in his larger story of redeeming a lost world for himself? How does, how does my family life fit into his story? And how does my, my role as a husband fit into this larger story? That's the way it's done. And then we're thinking about that day in and day out and asking how. We can be more faithful to his explanation and his desires and his story. And the more we do that, the more we find that life is good. God is great. Life has meaning and purpose. And it's rich. It's not easy. Didn't say it was easy. Didn't say it was easy. But here's the thing. A follower of Jesus, pursuing God's explanation, desires, and purposes, knows themselves to be blessed even when their life is a mess. they are. We plot and we plan so many things in our lives. We, we plot and plan our vacations. If I went into your house, this is, this is true of six out of every six out of every seven of you, but if I were to go into your house and I would say to you, where are your keys? You would say, I put my keys here. Where are your shoes? You would say, I put my shoes here. Where are, my, where are your pants and your shirts? And you say, that's none of your, no. They're here and they're here. If I were to come into your house, what you would say to me is, what you would show me, what you would be able to show me is that you've got a plot and a plan for getting up every morning and going to work. You've got a plot and a plan right now that you're making to get your kids to school. You know, where your kids' shoes are going to be, where the lunchbox is, you know, what Lunchables you got to have or whatever it is or, or, or lunch money or whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever it is, you've plotted and planned. Why? Because you understand that the state of North Carolina has an explanation, has desires, and also has a purpose in educating your children or wherever it is you take your kids. But you understand that, and that means you got to be able to get up and go and get them to school. You've plotted and you've planned. You do that with all of your life. But why is it we don't do that with our lives as followers of Jesus? See, the really blessed people, the really spiritually blessed people are constantly in the word going, God, I want to know your explanation. I want to know your direction and, and your desires. And, and Lord, I want to know how this fits into your story. And I want my life to fit into your story. I'm plotting, I'm planning on how to share the gospel with the people in, in my life that are far from him. I'm plotting and planning how to serve other people. I'm plotting, I'm planning how to grow further. Do you have a growth plan in your spiritual life? I'm plotting, I'm planning. I'm plotting and planning worship. See, one of the things I think that's happened to us since COVID is we've, we've stopped plotting and we've stopped planning for our spiritual well-being. That's why so many people aren't going to church at all anymore. They simply have dropped the plot and the plan. It's no longer important to them. They've drifted. They've drifted. They've drifted. 
They've stopped asking, God, what is your heart? What is your will for, for me in this? What is your desire? So David says in these two verses, just to start, he says, be very, very careful. Because here's the reality. You may be a believer, but you can drift. You may be a believer, but that doesn't mean you're going to be blessed. Robert Robertson, the author of Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, was just a little boy when his father died. In 18th century England, if, if your father died, uh, your family was in trouble, and that meant that he, as a little boy, had to go to work in a factory. He basically had to grow up without a dad and uh, came under the influence of a group of, of men that led him down a wrong path. And he began to become hardened to anything that was good. One day the story is told that he and his friends in kind of a drunken stupor found a gypsy fortune teller and began to just pour liquor all over her and force her to uh, tell their futures. At one point she took her finger and pointed at Robinson and said, you're going to have children and grandchildren. An odd thing to say, but he said in that moment it struck him if I'm going to have children and grandchildren, I can't keep living the way I'm living. I need to do something about it. He had heard of the preaching of a man by the name of George Whitfield, a powerful preacher, to cover up his hunger and his need for something different in his life. He invited his friends to go with him to hear Whitfield preach. He invited them to go with him to heckle Whitfield. But when he got there, he was struck by Whitfield's text. Oh, generation of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Was his subject. You think mine was bad? We ought to have Whitfield come and talk to you all. You generation of vipers. But the sermon left its mark. And Robinson left in dread. And for three years, he wrestled with surrendering his life to Christ. And at age 20, he did. Two years later, he wrote that hymn and expressed his joy in his new faith. He says, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, the cross. I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Now, that's not our language today, but you get... You get the point that his heart was absolutely full and overflowing with love for Christ. It was in the last stanza that Robinson acknowledged the awful drift that always threatens God's people when he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. One day just before his death, he was riding in a stagecoach. And the woman he was riding with, a stranger, was humming his hymn. And she turned to him and she said to him, what do you think about the hymn I'm humming? And he responded, and, and I quote, ma'am, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them, to enjoy the feelings now that I had then. The drift he feared had come. He had lost his strength. He had lost his blessing. He had lost his joy in delighting, in, in delighting the Father. Psalm 1 was for him, and it is for you, and it is for me. He 
if your claim is to be a follower of Christ. Oh, the joys of those who don't follow evil men's advice, who don't hang around with sinners scoffing at the things of God. But they delight in doing everything God wants them to, and day and night they're always meditating on, how his, law, on his laws and thinking about ways to follow him more closely. They are like trees along a riverbank, bearing luscious fruit each season without fail. Their leaves shall never wither, and all they do shall prosper. But for sinners, what a different story. They blow away like chaff before the wind. They aren't safe on judgment day. They shall not stand among the godly, for the Lord watches over all the plans and paths of godly men, but the paths of the godless lead to doom. Oh, loved ones, beware the drift. Beware the drift. Our God is not a part-time God. And our Savior is not a part-time Savior. Asking for just some of us. He calls for all of us. Beware the drift. We're all prone to wander. Let's stand together all across the room. Father God... Pray specifically this morning for every professing follower of Jesus. That you might take your word, Lord, now applied and heard. And that you would use it in each life of every believer. To bring examination and realization. Lord, forgive us when we tell ourselves that somehow we, we couldn't wander. We haven't wandered when we have. Forgive us, Lord, when we have accepted unfaithfulness as somehow fair to you. Compromise with the world as somehow wise. Lord, I hear you saying afresh to us as a church and to us as individuals, draw near to me. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Come to me. Draw near to me. Lord, we... Acknowledge today that there are two paths even a believer can take. So I want to pray today for those believers who know right here, right now, that they are not on the path of blessing and blessedness. They're not living that life of saying no to the walking, the standing, and the sitting. They're, the light has gone somewhere else and not to your law. That what is shaping them and molding them and making them right now, shaping, molding, and making their families right now is not your word, is not your law. That there are things in their lives that they know are not right, should not be there, and that there has been a walking that's been happening, a standing that's been happening, maybe even a sitting that's been happening. be rejected and ask 
for that behavior to be stopped and ask for that scoffing to be turned to praise again. And I hear you say, draw near to me. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. Without me, there is no blessedness. There is no strength. There is no blessing. Just weakness and ruin. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. Do the work that only you can do, Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I'm going to ask the uh, praise team to come on up and uh, what are we singing? Nothing else? It's good. So what I want to do today is just create an open space for believers to come. And I want to call the drifting. I want to call the drifting to hear the call of God. I want to call the drifting to hear the call of God say, draw near to me, draw close to me. I'm going to ask you to slip out from where you are and just come and kneel and pray or sit and pray here and ask the Lord if he might not grant you his forgiveness for where you've been standing, walking. That's not easy. That's not easy. No. But it's necessary. We start to own it. That's where confession and repentance and the forgiveness begin to come. So encourage. Encouraging the drifting to come. If you'd like prayer, pastors will be here. Come on. Adam, you now meet them here. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.